Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. This is Anne-Marie Lockhart, and you're listening to Vox Poetica's 15 Minutes of Poetry. You're actually listening to the second annual Thanksgiving uh, Festival of Poetry with Benjamin Hobbs and myself. Thanks for joining me, Ben. Thank you, Anne-Marie. It's early where you are. It's afternoon here by me, but it's still it's still before noon by you. So I really appreciate you getting on the phone to talk to us about this uh, poetry and Thanksgiving and all that before you settle down to eat. Um, well, hey, what are you going to be eating today, Ben? <laughs> We're going to be reading three poems. Uh, one one of them is called the Mirandiad. Uh, the other, another one is called Moth. And the third one is a little Thanksgiving joke poem called Thanksgiving No Thanks. (laughs) So let's start with the first one. And I would like to have you read it, and then I would like you to tell us a little bit about it. Okay. Okay, so this first one is called The Mirandiad, and it's a mini epic. And this is just book one of the poem, so it's not the whole thing. But, um... But it's a you know it's a narrative poem instead of my usual lyrical style, mm-hmm. um, and it goes like this: uh, Amazonian Miranda of the Wild, you who served as the greatest of generals under Julius Caesar for martial superiority, you said, "I feel powerful, destructive, like a warrior." As you marched into battle, on this new stage. Here make I entrance to pugilistically snap like a nose the egos of those marauding hordes which would plague our Rome otherwise. Impose myself as I devour their will and roar with the heart of a warrior that those nearby can cower and lament the name Miranda that echoes in the hills. And more than the name made grounds, at the peak of your fighting prowess, battlefield eyewitness reports flew that the enemy's blood mixed so heavily with the native mud that vegetation would find sustenance from a new source for years to come, and that in spite of the heavy rampage which left its blots on near everything, your armor still shone prominent, giving you company giving your company a boost of morale and your enemies reason for fear, creating vastly uneven casualty tallies. You would command without compromise, cutting a man's throat at the drop of a helmet and you drop it yourself. You led the brigade forward and breached with ease the enemy ranks without want or need for stratagems. People of this untamed land, you said, now that your shit is well ruined, we will take all that you have and give you a share in Rome's destiny in return for the blood spilt today. If you do not accept this fig leaf, we will take what is ours anyway and kill every man, woman, and child that Rome functions as a single parent. Needless to say, they usually accepted. Thus was untamed Gaul in melee and snared. And when, Miranda, you retired to your estate, resplendent in precious jewels and gold, fertile in lands and goodly people, situated lofty and eminent on the Tiber, promised by Caesar for your service, you met with a homecoming fit for a queen. And that's the end of book one. Nice. Now, I've, my first question to you is, where did you get the idea for this poem? <clears throat> this poem actually came about pretty amazingly. Uh, this guy on the radio, or, or, not on the radio, not on TV, on this show called The Colbert Report, was on to talk about 
empires, and specifically the Roman Empire. And I just thought his information was wonderful. And I disagreed with, you know, quite a few things he said. But, you know, the interviews that I liked most, I disagree with a lot of things. And uh, so that's the first inspiration. And then the second was this girl that I know. Uh, her name is <laughs> Megan. And this poem is actually dedicated to that person. And she is a, um, she is an MMA fighter. And she posted on Facebook once. She said, I feel like a warrior and I could snap snap people's egos like I could snap noses and, you know, I feel like <laughs> I could roar with the heart of a warrior. I wish I could sign up for a fight the day of so that way I could, I could do this because I feel ready, you know? And, um, at that point I commented on her post and said, you sound like you would, you would have done well in Roman times as a Roman general, you know, uh, conquering yeah. uh, barbarian <laughs> lands and stuff like that for, for the emperor. And she said, Good call, Ben. <laughs> and uh, so then I said, hmm, ding, there's, a, there's an idea for a poem. And it just it wrote itself from there. Now, I know you, you're you a very careful writer. A lot of people, um, you know, I think it, we have a wide range. And maybe it varies poem to poem for a lot of us, too, in terms of the precision with which we craft our work. But I know that you're very precise in terms of word choice and format, structure, these things, you put a lot of thought into those things a lot of the time. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking of some of the classical references in there that are not necessarily overt, there, but there are references, I, I think there's references to, you know, Greek mythology and the Persephone story and those kinds of things in there woven throughout in a very sophisticated way. And I wonder how much of that was intentional or evolved as you as you put the piece together, kind of on its own, in its own voice. Well, actually, it's kind of interesting because it came out, you know, that those two ideas were just the root of the poem. But then mm. as I went along with it, Julius Caesar joined the poem. And then yep. before you know it, Cassius, Caius Cassius from... Uh, Shakespeare's play, Julius yep. Caesar joined the poem too, and I took some liberties with, you know, both characters since, you know, Shakespeare took liberties with those characters too. And I yep. just, um, suddenly before I knew it, I had more people in the poem than I had originally <laughs> anticipated, and the poem ended up being a little bit longer even than I anticipated. I expected this just to be a little, just a little tiny story that uh, people could quickly read and get through, but then mm -hmm. all of a sudden these new these new people joined, and I'm just uh, you know <laughs> I suppose it just shows that I'm not uh, exactly what you call a natural storyteller or whatever you want to call it, and I don't have all these things planned out from the beginning. But as as it goes, these new things join. And when they join, I make little notes of them as I'm writing the poem, like right while I'm composing. I, I got my little notebook, and I compose the lines and everything, and I think of the plot as I'm composing the lines. And then if something is happening that's going to happen a lot further than where I am right then and there, then I jot in the um, in the indents of my notebook, you know, the, those little places where the lines are. I think of those mm -hmm. as, like, good places to put extra stuff or put uh, stuff that you just can't set down right then and there. 
And so that's how I went about plotting and um, and making this poem, basically. Now, you're definitely not afraid to experiment with uh, longer-form work. That that doesn't intimidate you at all. But I, I know you've been working, you know, on different things for a long time. I want you to read the second piece for us now, and then I want you to talk a little bit about that, um, its okay. origin, its structure, how it differs from the other piece in terms of what, where you were when you created it, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So um, this is this is like, like um, a, an earlier piece. Uh, this is from Scattered Beginnings, uh, which you see, see the light of day before this other book. Um, uh, the other book might as well be called Work in Progress because <laughs> it's undergoing such heavy revision. But um, So this is called Moth. <clears throat> Here I sit and sup upon the finest of words, and yet my heart stands barren, empty as a drunkard's flask long after last call. And that is my little epigram for the poem that I put um, because I felt like doing an epigram. I I wrote in an epigrammatic style at that point. And uh, it was just a little, you know, thing to comment on it. And the poem actually starts at this point. Could you ever feel like the artist working endlessly at his cantos, then tying John Adams, Odysseus, and Python? still working, beleaguered, and now listless as a sloth. What would you do after you ate a gold bug? Would you flail at the door, striking fancies, running running madly across your floor? And yet you flit around and sit as the new fog nips the slits, new fog still the same old sight, sitting down in dark of night, new fog, old fog's paramour. But I am happy now, but still the more. I am happy and that is all you need to know. How could you fail with Dolphy at your side, your past employer's slinks, and his cribbing all the sweets, the murmur of retreats as the swarming figurine stands fast outside the door, a smiling gentle ward creeping through, finding one so humble as to sit and talk a while, I forgot what it's like to purse my lips and smile. As a moth near your open flame, my wings lit a fire up, unfocused, a stroke of the same. <clears throat> you don't have to open fire like this, open fire in the morning's moistening mist. I fall to the floor, tear after the tryst. I chew on a scone and thin out my lips, endless rocking cradle death in tiny flips. My wings now singed, now black, as I plummet towards the floor, none without I more adore. How could I swim through the air and let the fire consume my wings, spastic shudders and endless groans, as a nasty shelob makes its way, to a foolhardy to let the fire consume my wings. The shelob slips across the blade in a zimmer frame, manacled and lacking its much-needed milk. She snorted in the seven sleepers den, shot the human race with a mighty gun, dry like an August noonday sunbath. And I, your protege, have swayed, delayed, dismayed, cliched, and rolled in round in the pound for pound, swinging softly, hearing sound, speaking madly over time upon the mound, only to resound upon a bitter ground out town. Close mine eyes to dream, lay down, and still I cannot help but frown, as though the words that would have found a way to get my mind around the little clowning thing in town. But I flew too close. 
my wings, now my soul, my soul, it was there. When I flew so freely, my soul, my soul, I am now amongst the embers, the dying embers, now my heart. My heart lying amongst to be set free, set free the new disappear, disappear the spirited away. Finding one so humble as to sit and talk a while, I forgot just what it's like to purse my lips and smile. And that's that's off. Now, tell me how you got the idea for that one. That one was a very interesting one because I consider that to be my first artistic leap forward. Um, okay. Believe it or not, I was sitting around the house at the time, and um, all I could think about was how do I move forward? How do I write something substantial? Because at that point, I felt like what I was writing was too um, too meaningless, I suppose. Mm. I don't know. So for some reason, I didn't seem to be touching anything profound. And mm-hmm. I felt like that was a big problem. And uh, it came not from any inspiration whatsoever, actually. I just... Uh, I just completely said I've got to do something better than what I've been doing before or else I'm going to keep writing crappy poems all the time. And um, and so I just wrote, and I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and um, I edited like crazy. I mean, I kept crossing out sections and stuff like that and completely reworking new sections and moving them around. And this is this is pretty much what happens when I don't know exactly where I'm going with the poem is that I I just write a whole bunch and then end up like really drastically moving things around until I finally find a sequence or arrangement that uh that suits my taste. And uh that was the first time that I did that sort of thing. That was the first time that I really uh looked at um most of the aspects of the poem. I didn't look at all aspects. It's a little a little over the top to my tastes nowadays, but at the <laughs> time I was I was going, This is this is it. This is the key to my step or this this is the key to, to the door to, to move forward as as an artist, I think. And um that was the first thing that I wrote that I was really proud of. <laughs> How many? How much of uh, your writing is done on an inspired basis versus a disciplined "I'm going to write now" basis, with or without inspiration? How much do I write uh, inspired versus uninspired? You mean basically? Well, I don't mean uninspired, but I mean like disciplined. You know, solely with the per- like I'm get- from what you described in these two particular poems. You know, one was inspired, and so you wrote something based on that. And the other one was, I'm going to do this. I have to I have to do something. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write, and I don't know where it's going to go yet, but that's what's going to happen next. Like, it seems, you know, I want to know how much of what, when you're writing, how often are you sitting down with the goal of, I'm just going to write something, or how often are you sitting down with a particular idea in mind that came to you out and about in the world somewhere? Uh, well, it can be kind of hard to get those ideas that just come about yeah. out and about in the regular world that are that are really good, yeah. like uh, yeah. like that Mirandiad poem. I think I think that's a really special poem, 
and I really like yeah. it a lot. And it's almost certainly going to go into the book when it uh, yeah. when I get it all typed out and everything. Um, those kinds of ideas usually aren't that good, and so I kind of end up trying to decide whether they're good early on before I start writing them down. As for when I um, uh, as for when I write like without necessarily the the uh, push of inspiration, as it were. Um, I think I do that probably about half the time. I mean, mm-hmm. half the time I'm doing that, half the time I come up with an idea and I go, hey, I'll write this and just go about it. But um, but half the time, uh, I think the, um, the times that I need to push to write, uh, because I, I do different things. I mean, sometimes I'm revising and sometimes... I'm writing, and yep. um, and sometimes, you know, when I'm finished revising, then I need to get back into the mode of writing. And to get back into the mode usually means that I have to figure out how to get back on keel again, so to speak, you know. And uh, yeah. getting back on keel involves me sitting down and writing without the push of inspiration, as as I would say. Now you're you're not afraid to rewrite either, and that's something. Let me ask you a technical question: When you are revising something, what do you do with the old copy? Do you keep it, the old version? Do you keep it? Do you throw it out? Do you you know just think of it as a, an iteration you want to save, and part of the evolution of the work, or do you just turn your back on it completely? Uh, I usually just turn my back on it because um, <laughs> I try as hard as I can to take the, you know, every time I'm redrafting, mm-hmm. I try as hard as I can to take the best bits out of the old draft and put it into the new draft. Because I'm a cheater mm-hmm. like that, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that's just draft. called smart work. That's what that is. That's just working smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I read the old draft as I'm doing the new draft. And I always... You know, I'm I'm very watchful to try to put the the best bits of that into into the new draft. And usually, when I'm yeah, I mean, I I don't know exactly how everybody else goes about the process of redrafting, but some people it sounds like they just completely go uh, go in cold every time, and they come out with a new product every time. You know, like it's a different thing uh, mm-hmm. every time they rewrite. But every time I rewrite, it's the same thing. It's just that I've tweaked it. You know, I've just tried to keep the best bits uh, as I as I move on. And in that way, I think I'm doing my best to preserve the original inspiration of it, but at the same time, keep only the best bits of that. Mhm. Do you write every day? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I mean, the I, I consider revising part of my writing too. Yeah, yeah, so. I would too. I would think about that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. And, so and how, do you, answer, how do you come up with the title, titles? Huh? How do you come up with the titles for your uh, poems? Where how do you where do they come first or last in, in your process? Uh, any time actually. Uh, this <laughs> poem, the Mirandiad. The title came last. The poem mm-hmm. itself was first. I I knew the person I was writing about. I knew the plot of the poem. I knew it was going to happen in the poem, basically. And, you know, I was just 
cutting it down as quickly as I could to get it to get it out there. And then I didn't title it until I was completely finished with it. And the title just came to me, and I realized it was, you know, sort of like the Aeneid or whatever. Or I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, but um, and so and since the main character is not Aeneas, it's uh, Miranda. I called it the Mirandiad. <laughs> <laughs> it's clever and it works. It totally puts us in the right frame of mind for the story. Um, it's a it's, awesome. it's a cool poem to me because it's it's an outsider's view of what Roman uh, values are. Even though mm-hmm. you know, even though I don't know enough about it to really to really say so. I mean, ultimately, uh, it's Virgil who knows, I, I suppose, about the Roman uh, disposition. But uh, you know, I just felt like I wanted to write write about somebody who was heroic. Uh, in sort of a similar way to um, to Odysseus and the Odyssey, but you know this particular person might not be as smart because they're they're Roman. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are all out of time, so tell us quickly what's on the menu for today at your house. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, the menu the the, the menu is uh, turkey as usual and um, stuffing and ham. And all that bland stuff that I don't like as much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not too into cranberry sauce or anything like that. It's uh, Thanksgiving. You know, I I heard this commercial on the radio the other day, and I go, here it is. It's it's finally here. You know, the, this <laughs> meal you've been looking forward to all year long, Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner. And I I immediately changed the channel because it was such BS to me. I couldn't I couldn't stand to hear another thing that commercial had to say because I was so mad that Thanksgiving is it, just so untrue to my experience of Thanksgiving. I love the family though. I love everything else about Thanksgiving, but the food is not to my not, um, not, not to thing. my right. right. I like a lot well, of spices, you know. Oh, it's a, it is kind of a bland meal for the most part. Some people do spice it up, I guess, but it's not, you know, it's not up there with, uh, you know. It um, would be nice I if we know. spiced it up. If we put like, well, uh, you know, if we put like curry on the turkey, or we put teriyaki on the turkey, or we put, you know, something, something delicious, something to zazz it up a little bit. But it's, you know, it's, you know. It's hard enough to get all this stuff cooked on like in a reasonable amount of proximity to meal time. Then. I know. It's, <laughs> Let's that's not get carried you away. You absolutely have to take that into consideration. But, you know, nevertheless, I do love getting together with family. My family is luckily a good family. So. <laughs> well, I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Turkey and Thank you. Or I, you not have one the trimmings. And I hope you get some time to write today because that's kind of important, too. Right after, like, you eat the turkey, but before that tryptophan kicks in and you fall asleep. So. Get you know, maybe when the tryptophan does kick in and you'll have a bit of an experience <laughs> while you're writing, right? A little bit of, uh, Before the you tryptophan know. kicks in, after the wine kicks in, maybe that's the way. There's yeah, a little, be a formula a little bit of outside, in, uh, a little bit of, uh, outside influence never hurts, I, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are done for today. I hope everyone had a great time. I hope everyone can go back to their festivities now, uh, refreshed with some poetry for their holiday. Um, 
keep looking at Vox Poetica, you'll see more uh, updates on on the iterations of Ben's work. Uh, he is, I don't even know, what, what revision are you up to with this? Are we up to 15 yet, or are we still like at 9? <laughs> uh, just a ridiculous amount. The, the scattered <laughs> beginnings is pretty much finished, though, so that's that's see? it. But uh, this other work is progress. a work in progress. Huh? That's all right. A work in okay. progress is a good thing, and uh, it, and it will eventually take shape, and you all get to read it. So I want you to keep apprised of uh, his progress, and I'd love you all to have a great day, and come yeah. back and join us again soon. And thanks for uh, thanks for having me. I, I'm glad that we got to have this uh, Thanksgiving second helping. Exactly, it's a new tradition, and everybody needs a new tradition from time to time. Turkey's great, but we have poetry now. It's even more awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye-bye.